we're trying to be is a safe place to explore the truth claims of Christianity regardless of where you find yourself spiritually. You may not be a Christian. You may not know what you believe. You may be a young Christian, growing Christian, solid Christian. You know, whatever, wherever you are, skeptical, spiritual, we're, we're really glad you're here because what we do every single week is that we open up the Bible together and we look at it and examine what the truth claims of Christianity are. In this particular semester, what we're doing is we're asking the million-dollar question, who is Jesus? Is he legit? Is he a liar? Is he crazy? Is, or is he who he really claimed to be? And so the way that we're going about answering that question is we're looking through the story of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And Melissa's going to throw it up on there, or if you, don't, if you have a sheet, you can follow along uh, in your handout. And I would just like to read these few verses out of Mark chapter 1 and then look at it together with you. Okay? Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the the, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's just pray together before we consider it. Okay? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do ask that in these next few moments you would be our teacher. Uh, We know and you know that it's hot in here, it's distracting, it's crowded, and apart from your Spirit's enabling grace, we will not understand, we will not learn, we will not know what this means. So please come uh, and be our teacher now in these next few moments, and we would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen? Um, I'm going to try to get rid of this little feedback real quick. Better? Hello? Can y'all still hear me? I'll just talk... More loudlier. <laughs> One of the things that I simultaneously love and hate about the fall semester at App is Club Expo. I mean, you know this. this I mean, this was the big organizational fair that many of you probably went through last week in the Convo Center. But, you know, if, in case you haven't been to Club Expo in a while, this is the big thing where all the different organizations have their little tables and they're throwing out swag and trying to recruit people. And the thing that, I, I mean, it's great. I mean, RUF does it too, so we're just as culpable as all the other organizations. So we do it too. But the thing that I hate for y'all's sake as students is because I know how awkward it is to walk through the club fair and try to see what's going on at the tables without making eye contact with the people behind them. Because you know, as soon as I make eye contact with that person, I'm going to get roped in and I'm going to get pressured to put my email address down and they're going to bombard me with emails like I do with some of y'all probably. But what's the deal? I mean, what's the deal with Club Expo? Jerry Seinfeld in that Howard moment right now. What is the deal with it? What, what is going on? Why the need to recruit? Well, I feel like the thing that's going on behind it is that every organization is basically looking at you and inviting you and calling you and saying, look, if you will join us, 
your life really will be better. I mean, our cause is really important. Our people are really cool. We, this is where you need to be, and you'll be very glad and happy that you did. Now, the reason I bring all of this up is because Jesus is doing something actually very similar in this story. He is inviting us. He's calling us. He is recruiting us to follow him and to be a part of his kingdom. He's not throwing swag at us, but he is inviting us and he's calling us to be a part of his kingdom. And so what I want to do is just look at this story because we're going to really learn four very important things. We're going to learn what the kingdom is, what the kingdom does, why you desperately need it, and then how you can be a part of it. Okay? Those are the four things I just want to explore with you from this passage. What the kingdom is, what the kingdom does, why you need it in the first place, and then how you can become a part of it. Okay? Let's look at this first thing. What the kingdom is, what, he, what, what does he mean by that? What is he talking about when he talks about the kingdom? Well, to set this up, uh, earlier this summer, my wife and I rented and watched the movie We Bought a Zoo and bawled our eyes out on the couch. But if you're, if you're familiar or not with this uh, movie, We Bought a Zoo, it's about this guy who's played by Matt Damon, and he purchases this dilapidated, undercared-for zoo, as the title of the movie suggests. And what happens is he comes in with his family, and he is the new owner, and he is the, basically the new manager of this new zoo. And what happened was all the previous owners had made choices and decisions on how to run the thing, and because they made a bunch of bad decisions, they basically ran the zoo into the ground, and it was you know, teetering on bankruptcy, and it was just a bad situation. So he comes in with a whole new set of values, a whole new set of ideas, a whole new set of priorities, and says, I'm going to make some adjustments. So if you've seen the movie, you know, he, he expands the enclosure of the bear named Buster, who is um, actually one of the names that Catherine and I are considering if our child's a boy. Um, but we would name him after Buster Bluth and not Buster uh, the bear. So... What am I saying? Where am I? Okay, back to the We Bought a Zoo. He expands the enclosure of the bear named Buster. He's all into advertising and art and kind of promoting it. My point is, is that any time a new manager comes in, they have a whole new way of running things, a whole new set of values, things that they emphasize, things that they don't emphasize. And you know this if you've ever been uh, at work and there's a change of management while you've been working and things become radically different while you're there. Uh, or with sports, I mean, this happened to me when I was in high school. I played basketball when I was a junior in high school, and we had a new coach come in, and he wanted to emphasize uh, conditioning and running and getting in shape, where our old coach didn't emphasize that as much. So the, under this new coach, we had to run 12 six-minute miles in the off-season before we could even suit up uh, for the regular season. He emphasized one thing, coach emphasized another. My point with all of this is to say this. Anytime a new manager comes in, a new coach comes in, somebody new comes in, they change things because they have a different set of values and a different set of priorities. And Jesus is coming onto the scene in this opening chapter of Mark, and he is announcing a change in management. He's announcing a regime change. He, he is looking at you and looking at the world and saying, look, the way that the world used to operate... The way that you used to live your life, all the values that you used to have, I'm coming in and I'm flipping everything, I'm changing everything, I'm tipping everything on its head. Here's where I get this. If you look at verse 14 and 15, it, it uses that word again, gospel. 
Now, if you were here last week, we um, discussed that at length, and so I'm not really going to talk about it, but, but I do want to mention this in passing. The word gospel originally was not a religious word. When it was used in the original context, it, it, you know, you and I think of religious connotations. It was not a religious word. It was actually a political word. It, it meant groundbreaking news announcement. So, for example, you know, I don't... I don't um, I don't run marathons, never run a marathon. I know some of you have, my wife has. But if you look into the supposed history of how marathons came to be, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if it's true or not, but Wikipedia affirmed that the story behind marathons was that Persia came in and invaded Greece, and there was this battle at the Battle of Marathon. And Greece won the war. But nobody else in the empire knew about it. They didn't have Facebook and Twitter and text messaging, as depressing as that sounds. But what they did was one lone messenger ran the 26 miles from Marathon to Athens to announce the gospel, that the war had been won, that the victory was ours. And actually, once the war hit there, they sent all these different messengers all throughout the empire spreading the gospel. And those people were called evangelists by the way. But that's the point. A gospel is the announcement of some radically good history-altering news. And look, in verse 15, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What he's saying is, the time is finally here. The kingdom of God has broken in and it's being inaugurated and established Right now in our midst. Life-changing, history-altering good news. And it's a revolution. And it's radical. And it's crazy. Because if you begin to actually follow Jesus and be a part of this revolutionary, counterintuitive, radical management change, he's going to look at you and he's going to say things like this. The only way that you will really win is if you lose. You will become strong when you finally let all of your friends know and let people know really how weak you are. You will will come to life as a person when you begin to give your life away for other people. Uh, You will find and experience the love of God in a deeper way, sometimes at a worship conference, sometimes at a concert, maybe, but most often when you acknowledge how sinful and messy and broken you are. I mean, it's, it's totally backwards, totally radical, totally counterintuitive. That's what the kingdom is. So, okay, secondly, what does the kingdom actually do? What, what, what is... What is it about the kingdom? You know, what does it look like in your real practical life if, if you become a part of it? Well, that's the second thing I want to look at. What does it look like to be a part of this kingdom? Look at verse um, 16 through 18. Jesus is walking beside the sea, and he comes upon these two fishermen. They're on the job, Simon and Andrew, and he says to them, follow me. They drop everything, and they start following him. And then the very next scene, verse 19 to 20, is basically a very similar scene. Comes up to two more fishermen, James and John. Same thing happens. He says, follow me. And they drop everything and they walk and follow him. The funny thing, though, at least (laughs) the funny 
idea for me is in verse 20 where it says that they actually leave their father in the boat, which for whatever reason I think is funny. There's, you know, the three of them in a boat, the two of them get up and leave, and the father's like, where are you going? But, but, But here's what's going on here. If you want to get a job in our current culture, I mean, what you typically do is this is the reason why you're in school and you go to school and you get your degree and then you apply and you go before the company and you interview and you may or may not get the job. That's how you get jobs typically these days. If you wanted a job in this ancient culture, the way that you got a job is that you were born into it. So if your family owned, uh, you know, was a, a fishing family, guess what you would be doing like by the time you started walking? I mean, you would be fishing, and you would, you would apprentice under your father, and as he got older, you would slowly take over the business until it got to the point where he was too old and he, and he couldn't take it over anymore. So here's what's going on. When Jesus comes up to these guys on the job, and he says, follow me, it, we, we don't even really, it's hard for us to even comprehend how earth-shattering this is. Because what he's doing is he's not coming up to them and saying, hey, can y'all take a, a work break for a second, like chill out for a few minutes? What he is doing is he is calling these men away from their identity. He's calling them away from everything that they've ever known. He, he's looking at them and saying, look, I have to have priority over your family. I must have priority over your career. And the thing that's really crazy is that they actually respond. They get up and they follow him. Now, now we know later in the story they fish again. They relate to their family again. But, but what is going on? Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, if you want to be a part of my kingdom and follow me, you must give me all of your energy, all of your affection, all of your heart and everything else, your family, your friends, your job, your career, your dreams, your ambitions, all of that comes in second. All of that gets demoted. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want me in your life, I must be your king. I get everything. I get all of your relationships get all your relationships get reprioritized. He becomes front and center, everything else gets demoted. Now I know There's many of you here in this room and many people on this campus that claim to have walked away from their old identity, claim to have walked away from the old ways of the old kingdom and are members of the new. But if we honestly take a look at your life, Jesus is not your king. He's something else. You're not relating to him as your king. Even though you claim that he is, if we took a closer look, He's something else. So, for example, one group, one group of y'all, maybe in this camp, where Jesus is not your king, but he's actually your vending machine. And what I mean by that is you're the type of person that usually says, if there's a set of rules, I must follow them all meticulously. And, in fact, I need to add a few of my own just to make sure that I don't break those rules. You're a rule keeper. You're a religious, good, tight, you know, button-down person. And you most likely relate to Jesus as your vending machine. And what I mean by that is you say, I'm good, I follow the rules, I read my Bible, I pray, I do the right things, I don't cuss, I don't smoke, I don't have sex, I don't drink. I'm a good person. And as a result, because I'm a good person, God blesses me. He answers my prayers. 
he makes me happy, and I want him to, you know, he's going to give me a spouse one day and children and the good life. But don't you see, if that's how you're relating to him, you're pumping in the quarters of your obedience with the hope of all these other things popping out, the blessing, the obedience, you know, the blessing, the, the peace, the happiness, the family. And if that's what you're doing, you have to recognize those things are the things that you're really serving. Jesus is not your king. He's a means to an end. Those are the things that you're really living for, the blessing, the house, the family, the, the happiness, so much so that you know in your heart of hearts you say, I will only serve Jesus if my family's put together, if my life makes sense, if I'm happy, if things are working out, if I'm being blessed. And what you mean by blessing is you know, middle, upper class, American blessing. That's the kind of blessing you want. And if you don't get it, if he seems to withhold those things, you get angry. You get ticked at Jesus. And it's like, why serve him? Why serve him if he's not going to give me what I really want? Why keep pumping in the quarters to the machine if it's not spitting out the Reese's peanut butter cups, right? This is how you're relating to Jesus. He's not your king. He's not the end in and of itself. He's a means to an end. He's not your king. He's your vending machine. That's some of you. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, others of you, he's not your king. He's not your vending machine. Instead, he's your consultant. He's your consultant. And you're the type of person where you look at a rule and you say, okay, rules were meant to be broken. Uh, I'm a, I have a rebel instinct. I like pushing the limits. I like kind of doing my own thing. I don't like being hemmed in. I don't like being challenged. Here's kind of the religious good person. Here's the rebellious bad person. And if, if this is you, Jesus is not your king. He's your consultant. And what this looks like for you is, you know, Jesus gives you good ideas and good advice, but you have ultimate veto power. If he tells you something that you like, that makes sense, you're like, yeah, that sounds good. I will go with that. But if he tells you to do something that you don't want to do and makes zero sense, then you have veto power. He's your consultant. He's not your king. And so what that looks like for you, practically, is that you say things like this in your heart of hearts. Sure, Jesus, you can have Sunday mornings. You can even have Wednesday nights. But you cannot have Friday night. And you can't have Saturday night. Or you say things like, uh, yeah, sure, Jesus, you can have spring break. You can have a weekend for fall conference. But you cannot have my sexuality. You can't have, uh, you don't have the right to tell me how to relate to my family. You can't tell me how to forgive my roommate. Don't you see, in all of those instances, he's he's not your king, you are. He's just your consultant. But what the kingdom of God does is that when Jesus comes into your life, he's like a a wrecking ball, and he explodes those false ideas of who he is, and he becomes your king. All other relationships get reprioritized. He becomes front and center. Everything else gets demoted. That's what the kingdom is. That's what the kingdom does. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Matt, if you're trying to convince me to submit to Jesus as my king, you're not doing a great job because this doesn't, this doesn't sound great, what you're presenting here. Well, let me just take um, a few minutes and try and make a case for why you need this, why you desperately need to submit to Jesus as your king. Not your vending machine, not your consultant, but your king. Here's why. I, I didn't include it in the handout or the screen up there because it would be, t- be too long. But if you read through the rest of Mark chapter 1, 
here's what's going on. You have four back-to-back stories of Jesus healing people. It's, it's like rapid fire. Somebody you know, comes up and he heals them. He goes over there, heals somebody else. It's like boom, 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 boom. Now the question is, why is this the way that this book starts? All of these rapid fire kind of stories about Jesus healing people. I think it's the same idea behind why when you go to a web page, the home page is sort of like the most important thing. It should have all the info that you need about that web page. If if all the info is not there and you've got to go hunt for it, it's not a good web page. Or like your resume, when you submit a resume, everything needs to be up front to say, this is what I'm about. Web page, this is what I'm about. Mark chapter 1 is throwing in your face, this is what Jesus is about. It's a vivid picture of what the kingdom of God looks like in real life. Meaning, there's restoration. There's joy. There's relationships that are being mended. There's healing. There's fixing. Things are slowly being worked back to the way that things ought to be. The picture of the kingdom of God is that Jesus is making things right. But he has to be king. Let me explain it this way. Um, one of my favorite movies is Goodwill Hunting. Robin Williams, Matt Damon, lots of Matt Damon tonight for whatever reason. But the story is that there is this gifted, brilliant young man who has all this potential because he's so smart, but he has all kinds of personal issues and damage and, and baggage, and, and, he's, and he's come from this really hard context, and so he cannot... He cannot access his potential because he's so stuck in just his situation and his context. So as the story goes on, he he goes to counseling with uh, uh, under the Robin Williams character. And as their relationship develops and as the story develops, the Matt Damon character basically gets pulled out of this his slavery to his own issues and his own drama and his own context, and he's able to flourish. He's able to thrive as a human being. But it took that wiser Robin Williams' mentor figure to to get in there and basically unlock it and and to release the potential that was in there. I mean, you know this. You know the. You know what this is like from your own life, right? I mean, if you've ever had a good teacher or counselor, coach or mentor who's who's come into your life and has really just made you thrive as a person, that only they really could unlock those things in you. You became great only underneath their leadership and their mentorship. And what Jesus is showing us, he is saying to us, you and I are damaged and we are stuck in our old patterns, our old way of living, and we will never flourish, we will never thrive as human beings unless we come under his leadership, his kingship. Only he will will unlock all that is great in us and really make us flourish as human beings. And if we do not submit to his leadership, to his kingship, we will be forever frustrated and hopeless. I mean, just think about it from your own life. Your own attempts to manage your life and to make yourself better. Do you remember about nine months ago making New Year's resolutions? Some of you most likely did that. Where even is that list of your New Year's resolution? Do you still have it? I don't, I don't know what I 
even resolved to do this year. It's gone. And I'm guessing many of you came into the semester, especially if you're upperclassmen, and said, okay, this year is going to be different. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to read. I'm going to exercise regularly. I'm going to manage my time better. You did this? How's that working out a week and a half into school, right? Our own attempts to manage ourselves, make ourselves better, they just basically leave us feeling the same. And Jesus is coming to us and saying, you will never flourish or thrive as a human being unless I am your king. Which means if you are submitting to him as your king, you should expect to see change in your life. If you are an anxious person, you should slowly see yourself becoming more grounded, less frantic. If you are an angry and unforgiving person, you should see yourself slowly becoming more gentle, more gracious. If you are a fearful or self-absorbed or self-hating person, you really should see yourself slowly kind of undergoing this renovation of your character. That is what you need. That is what we all desperately long for. The kingdom of God. That's why you need it. Because you will never, you will never flourish or thrive as a human being apart from it. That's what the kingdom is. That's what it does. That's why you need it. Lastly, if this is really what you were built for, what you long for, how do you get to become a part of it? Well, Jesus tells you, and it's pretty simple, actually. He says in verse 15 that the way into the kingdom, and actually the way of the kingdom, is to repent and believe. Now, I know those are really churchy words, and for most of us, those mean nothing. So let's take a second. What does he mean by those two words, repent and believe? First, repent. Repentance is basically just turning. That's all that word means is turning from something to something else. And what it means in this context is turning from anything that you trust in back to God. Because you, you do trust in something. You, tr- you look at your moral record. You look at your you know, political involvement, your popularity, your looks, your weight, whatever. You look at something and say, that's what makes me special, that's what makes me different, that's what makes me good. And repentance is turning from that and turning to God. Stop trusting in that and actually starting to trust in God. Which repentance does not mean, notice, turn from bad things you're doing and start doing good things. Stop cussing, stop drinking so much, and then start reading the Bible and go to church. That's not repentance. Repentance is not going from bad you to good you. It's going from anything that you're trusting in back to God and then having him receive you. That's repentance. Belief, faith, is really just an open-handed embrace. Coming to God with nothing in your hands and just grabbing him in your heart of hearts for who he is and what he has done. It's not manufacturing some weird mystical feeling. It's not coming to God and making promises that you're going to do more and try harder. It's just receiving him. Taking a hold of him. And so, really, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You would not turn from something else unless you believed that Jesus was better. And really, probably the best story that I've heard that captures this, that I heard recently, which is apparently a true story, and it's unbelievable, is the story that took place in the 14th century in the area that's um, now Belgium. And the story goes that there was this duke named Reynold who oversaw this land. He basically was kind of the big dog of the kingdom. And he had this younger brother who mounted a revolt 
captured his older brother so that he could become Duke. He could become the big dog on the block. And so what he does is he takes his older brother and he locks him in a prison, in a castle, in a cell. And what he says to his brother is this. He says, look, you can walk out of this cell anytime you want. In fact, he didn't even put a lock on the door. He just put him in a cell, didn't lock the door, and he said, look, you stay in there, but if you want to leave, as soon as you open that door and walk out, you will reclaim your kingdom, your title, your freedom, and I will gladly submit to you as, you know, your underling. Which sounds weird, but it's actually incredibly diabolical. Because the reason he said, you can reclaim your kingdom as soon as you walk through that door, is because he knew that his brother couldn't. Because the door was especially narrow, and his older brother was enormously fat. And so when he said, he said, you can walk through that door, reclaim your kingdom, the only thing that you have to do is basically lose weight. Which, you know, really wouldn't have been an issue because prisoners in those days were were fed, you know, meager portions of bread and water. But what he did, this is so mean, is that he would feed his older brother, you know, these portions of the richest, fattiest foods every single day in this, you know, luxurious, spacious prison cell. All this guy had to do was say no and walk through that door and reclaim his kingdom and his freedom and his power. And what happened is that he stayed in that prison, eating, gaining weight, for 10 years. Never reclaimed the kingdom. Here's what's going on. You can have access to the kingdom of God when you say no to the old kingdom, to your old identity, to your old values. When you turn from those things and you believe that Jesus is actually better When you say no to those things, the things that are enslaving you, you are freed, you're liberated to walk in freedom and in the kingdom. But when you refuse to repent, when you refuse to repent of your sin or your self-justifying goodness, your own righteousness, you refuse to stop trusting in other things, your old identity, if you will not walk away from those things, then what that means is that you are indulging yourself in the very thing that's imprisoning you. And I really am convinced, this is why so many Christians on this campus and so many Christians in this room are bored to death with Jesus. Because we will not say no to the things that are numbing our soul. And we remain prisoners, enslaved, when we have access to glory and beauty and freedom. So Jesus is inviting you and me tonight to say no to our old identity, to the old kingdom, to the old ways of living life, and to walk into the ways of the new kingdom. I will end with this. You have to know this, though. Jesus never calls us to do something that he himself has not already done. When he comes up to James and John and he calls them away from his father in the boat... The only reason why Jesus is even having this conversation with them in the first place is because Jesus had already left his Father in heaven. We we sing it in the hymn here. We sing it in this one song. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. 
he left his father and came down to live amongst us. And as the story continues, if you stay with us throughout the rest of the semester, you will see at the end of Mark, he gets ripped from his father's presence. Because on the cross, it's the only time that Jesus does not call God his father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus is being cast out of the family, as it were, so that you and I could be brought in. He he is being thrown out of the kingdom so that you and I could be brought in. And so, what he does now is he calls and invites us into the kingdom of God to turn from the old ways of living, the old ways of thinking, the old ways of feeling, the old things that we were trusting in, and to, by faith, embrace the king who will embrace you back. That is the invitation for you tonight. Will you turn? Will you believe? Will you grab a hold of the king once again? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. But that's the call and that's the invitation. Let me pray. Father, we do ask that you by your sovereign power would enable our hearts to say no, to turn from things that may even be good things, things that we want to trust in, and yet, if it's not you, it is things that are enslaving us and numbing us and just making us more and more bored with you. Father, would you, by your kindness, release us, free us, and give us the kindness to taste and delight and to live in the kingdom of God. That would be our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.